Job chapter 15 to 17. We read. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with wind, windy knowledge, and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk, in words that which, uh, with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in on God's counsel? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know? that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the compass of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash that you, that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? man that he can be pure or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous behold God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight how much less one who is abominable and corrupt a man who drinks in justice like water I will show you here and what I have seen I will declare what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. Their wicked man raced in pain all days, though all the years, through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless, dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness. And he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. <clears throat> they prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield. Because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat around his waist, and he has lived in desolate cities, in houses that none shall should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness, and the flame will dry up his shoes, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off the unripe grape like the vine, and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceal trouble and give birth to evil and their womb prepares to seed. Then Job answered and said, 
I have heard many things, miserable comforters that you all are. Should windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also speak as you do, if you are in my position. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and solace of my lips should assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made me desolate, all my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies on my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth against me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on their cheek. They have massed themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and cast me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he dropped me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surrounded me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gold onto the ground. He breaks me with the breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewn together sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no evidence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Oh, earth, cover not my blood. Let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends call me, my eyes pour out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God. As a son of man does this with his labor. For when a few years have come, I shall go away from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eyes dwell on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there? Who will put up a security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of their children will fail. He has made me a byword to the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eyes have grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stars himself up against the godless. Yet, the righteous holds on to his way, and he who cleans hands, he who has clean hands, grows stronger and stronger. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off. 
the desires of my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, or to the womb, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Please keep your Bible Well, it's great to be with you. Uh, my name's Rob, if I haven't met you before. Uh, it's wonderful to have you. Um, we are in the thick of this sermon, um, the series on Job. Um, so if you're catching up with that, um, there's stuff on the website. I'm sure you could jump in and, uh, and make use of that. Um, what, the way we've been doing it is sort of to look at one of Job's friends, their speech, and Job's response to that friend. So we're sort of that's why we're dealing with large, larger sections. This one was three chapters. Some of them is four. Um, uh, so count yourself lucky that you came this week. Um, so three chapters, um, and we'll look at mainly Job's response um, to his friends. Um, why don't I pray for us uh, before we begin? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you know us, you know what's good for us. Uh, thank you that on a day like today when we, um, I guess, would not really want to think about much, and, um, and yet you decide, you think it best that we think about something that's going to challenge us and change us. Um, so we do pray by your spirit that you would be working in us uh, to make us more like your son. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a million dollar question. It's here. Can a man be pure? It's also said like this. Can he who is born of a woman be righteous? Can a man be pure? Can he who is born of a woman be righteous? Uh, That's the question uh, that comes up in Eliphaz's speech. Um, it's there down um, in verse 14, if you look down there. Um, but we've heard that question before, haven't we? Can anyone remember when we've heard that question before? This is star, star prize territory, okay? Where, where have we heard that question before? Does it, does it ring a bell? Anyone think they've heard it before? Okay, Job asked it in chapter 9, maybe. I don't, that might be one, yeah. It's actually the guy who's speaking here. Last time he spoke in chapter 4, and um, if you want to look back at chapter 4, you might remember he had this sort of uh, strange spiritual experience at night. Um, chapter 4 and he was describing it to Job and um, he starts off with his uh, dramatic retelling of it in, ch- in verse 12 and it runs all the way down to uh, verse um, 17 which is where the massive climax <laughs> of his spiritual experience this revelation from God is, a, is actually just a question 
and it's this question here. So he says, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? So he's asked the question before. It's not so much of a revelation, is it, to have more questions, um, but that's what he said. And Eliphaz um, is, is putting forward this question again to Job. And the whole reason is that Job has been claiming innocence. Job has been claiming to be in the right with God and that this um, experience, which is anything but that, um, goes against the grain or the, or the evidence. Um, that, that what he feels that God is attacking him, as we heard in that reading, um, just goes against the fact that he is he knows he is in the right with God. He knows he is he's been forgiven. And so and, and what gets Eliphaz really upset is that Job is justifying himself by that. That Job is saying, I'm in the right with God. That basically uh, Job is saying, Can a man be pure? Yes. Uh, can he who is born of a woman be righteous? Yes. Now we'll get to how Job thinks that's possible. Um, but that is why he's so upset. So there's three parts uh, to Eliphaz's speech. And if you want to look down with me back to chapter uh, 15. Uh, in verses 1 to 6, he basically uh, makes an accusation against Job about his words. That they're actually, they do no good, that they're actually evil. The things that Job is saying are evil uh, because they do away with the fear of God. Um, in verses 7, all the way down to um, 16, uh, he puts Job down. So it's a put down. Uh, it will appear, appear on the screen. Um, and then in verse 17, all the way down to the end, he makes a threat. He basically says to Job, if you continue in this path, this is where that path ends up. This is what will happen to you. And so when he describes the wicked man... He's talking about Job. He's saying, you are the wicked man, and this is what is going to come of you. Um, so those three things, if you look at them on the screen. An accusation, your words, Job, they're dangerous. What you're saying, that you can be in the right with God, that you are in the right with God, that's dangerous talk. And it's dangerous because you do away with the fear of God. If, if people can be in the right with God, no one's going to fear God. If there is no, if people have been acquitted... Of the punishment, they'll go and reoffend. <laughs> That's what he's saying. That's your accusation. And the put down is, who do you think you are? And it's quite interesting. If you look down um, at that section, um, verse ten, um, we didn't have quite have grey hair for George, but both the grey head and the aged are among us, older than your father. You know, there's a fair bit of flexing of the muscles going on here, and saying we've got more runs on the board than you, Job. Um, we've got more years put together than, than even your father. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, that kind of, you know, therefore we're, we know more than you. It's an attempt to put him down. Who are you, Job, um, to, to make these claims? And the thirdly, a threat. And um, this is what will happen to you. And so we're not going to spend so much time on Eliphaz's speech, uh, but that's just the framework for it. Um, a, an accusation about his words, that what Job is saying is dangerous, a put-down and a threat, um, that this is going to happen to you uh, because of what you're saying. And let's uh, flick over and let's look at what Job is saying. Um, and you can find that in chapter 16. 
Job replies. Job's speech or response is to stage what his attackers are doing to him or have done to him in light of God's sovereignty. I'll say that again. So his reply and what he says throughout his whole speech is there is a connection between what my attackers are doing and what God decides to do with me. Because God has decided to attack me, that is the only reason why my attackers can can get at me. And uh, you'll see that in the middle section. So if you look at verses 6 down to uh, the end of verse 17. Uh, Verse 7 actually, let's go from verse 7. So listen now, um, listen out for, for who's doing what. Listen out for um, who Job is attributing the action or the attack to in these verses. And it, and it changes. Um, so listen out in each verse. Uh, surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpened his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sowed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. How did it start off? Who was, who was doing the attack? Who was doing the attack at the start? God. Uh, in the middle? People, yeah? Men have gaped at me. And they have done this. They're attacking me. And, and where does it end up at the end? God. So you see what Job's doing? is joining these two things together. Job is, he's, his perspective on this is, yes, these are the guys who are attacking me, but God is is behind their attack. God is allowing this in such a way that actually this would not be possible for them. They would not be able to do what they do unless God permitted it. Unless this is what God wanted uh, to do. And that's what Job believes. And it's what he finds most unsettling about his situation. He's, you know, I guess the, the vulnerability, the, you know, the scare, the fear of, of these guys, yes, but um, the, the concern that God is against Job, the fear that God seems to be against him, is what really unsettles him. That's what most unsettles Job, because he, he, that doesn't fit with what he knows of God. He is in the right with God. What's going on? Um, well, this joining together, this God's sovereignty, God being in control, and the attack of these people, including his friends, the fact that Job joins them together actually leads him to three to see something in the future, and there's three different ways he sees it. 
And so we're just going to focus in on that. Um, he sees the future in three ways. Uh, the first way is um, in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 16. And it's a witness. Job has a witness in heaven. Uh, let's read that. Job says, O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he, as the witness, would argue the case of a man with God, as the son of man does with his neighbour. So the first thing this has caused Job to see is that he has a witness in heaven. We saw it a little bit in his last speech, actually, that he was looking for the one who could be an arbiter between us. But here he knows he has a witness in heaven, someone who will testify to his innocence. So even if now everyone's saying, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, it will be seen that Job is in the rights, that he's vindicated. So that's a future thing that Job sees. The second thing, future thing that Job sees is that his enemies won't triumph forever. Let's have a look down um, in verse um, 17, chapter 17 and verse 4 and 5. Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, he's talking about God doing this, therefore you will not let, let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. So the second thing that Job knows, and he is being forced to see and to cling to in the future, is that his enemies will not triumph forever. Those who inform against their friends, that talks about betrayal, doesn't it? Um, and these friends have betrayed Job. It's not going to be forever. That's not going to be the final say. So two things. Job is going to be vindicated. The friends are not going to be able to hold their attack forever. Um, they won't triumph over him. And thirdly, and this is really important that we get this, but death comes first. But death must come first. And you think, oh, right, I, I wish I could just go to... Numbers 2 and 1 and 2, right? If you're Job, you just think, I just want to go to 1 and 2. I want to get to that future. But death must come first. And that's what Job says in the rest of chapter um, 17. He flags it up at the start of chapter 17. My spirit is broken, my days are extinct, the graveyard is ready for me. And then he gets to it um, at the end of chapter 17. So let's look at that now. Um, he's just talked about the friends they make night and day uh, verse 12 the light they say is near to the darkness and he says this if I hope for Sheol as my house if I make my bed in darkness if I say to the pit you are my father and to the worm my mother or my sister where then is my hope who will see my hope will it go down to the bars of Sheol shall we descend together into the dust so Job there's three things that are going to happen. <laughs> and they're not in the order that they're going to happen, right? 
Job knows that there is a witness in heaven who will vindicate him. He is in the right with God. He knows that his enemies will not be able to triumph over him forever, attack him forever. Because God has um, withheld understanding from them. That's a sign of God's judgment. And yet what has to happen before he gets there is one last enemy. And that one last enemy is death. And it was the same for Jesus. And it's the same for Christians. And if we don't get this, we're going to get the Christian life wrong. Because we will think everything is going to go well in this life. Jesus has the victory. Victory now. No. (laughs) Death must come first. And then. And then. Christians will stand before God. Vindicated. Justified. By Jesus. And then all of Jesus' enemies will be trampled under his feet. But now. What it feels like now to be a Christian. Is that the, the jaws of death are closing in. Right? The shadow of death is closing in. And we really need to get this because otherwise we won't be able to encourage each other. We won't really have any motivation to encourage each other. What we'll do as a church is we'll just, someone and so will say, I'm having a bit of a hard time. I've got, you know, I found out I've got cancer. And everyone will ignore them because we don't know what to do with death. But actually, in the gospel, what Job has realised about who God is enables him to to cope and to look death in the face and to not pretend that it's not horrible and awful it is um, it is and Job will go through death and you and I will go through death and it will be awful and so these are the three things in the future that, that connecting God's sovereignty with what is happening to him in the moment helps Job to see and that Jesus is a witness, the one who testifies to his innocence. Uh, enemies won't be able to triumph forever, and that death must come first. But death is that one last enemy, and we will face it, and yet that won't be the final word. And so, um, as we think about what uh, we're going to take away from this, and how this will encourage us, um, if we're Christians here today, and maybe we're not, we're not Christians here today, That question, can a man be pure? Can someone who is born of a woman be righteous? Can anyone be in the right with God? Yes. How do we know that that's true? Because experientially, it might feel a lot different. If we just judge by our experience, we say it doesn't feel like it because we're in the jaws of death. And everything is falling apart. If we judge it by our experience, that's the conclusion we'll come to. But if we judge it by what we know of Jesus, what the Bible reveals to us about Jesus, he was born of a woman and righteous. He was innocent and yet was put to death. And went through the most, all of these experiences and more. So if we go by that then we'll be reassured that there is a way for us through death. Not avoiding that, not jumping over death, not getting away without any suffering. We will suffer. And yet because Jesus was raised, we will be raised with him. 
Um, let's have a think about uh, what this means for us. Um, let's have a little look at what uh, Eliphaz says to Job. Um, I'm not going to... I know I'm going back to the start of the reading, which makes you think, oh no, we're never going to get to the end. Uh, but I'm just going back to the start of the reading to see what Eliphaz says about Job's beliefs and what he's saying. Um, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said... Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the time of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. If we are those who will speak the gospel of grace, the free gift of salvation, to rebels and sinners and criminals and paedophiles and those who have completely rejected God, if we would preach that gospel of grace, that free gift of salvation, and people will say to us, that's wrong. People will say to us, that's evil. People will say, particularly religious people will say, you are giving people a license to sin. You understand that? That's what, that's what he's saying. He's saying, Job, it's not just that what you're saying is, is, is a bit misguided. It's evil because you are doing away with the fear of God. If there is no fear of God and it looks like you've taken it away entirely with what you're saying then people can do what they want or people will do what they want now we know that's not true and we know that's not true because the spirit of God changes people I was thinking about Paul the apostle and Paul was a murderer of Christians he hunted them down and got them executed systematically without a care in the world probably went to bed quite a a peaceful guy and, and, and you'd say that Paul's gospel would take away the fear of God that, that they would just enable people to do all of that again and more and yet you see the transformation in Paul don't you and Paul said um, in Romans he said people will charge, have charged him and his gospel with this shall we do evil that good may increase as some have charged us with saying people were saying of Paul's gospel that it's going to cause more evil to happen And yet there before them was one who had been spiritually transformed. The Spirit of God had changed Paul. Such that he was not what he was. His nature was new. His heart had changed. And this new motivation, this new desire to live for Christ. They just can't. I mean, they can try and excuse and explain it from something else. But it's standing there right in front of them. And so there's one application here, which is that when we preach the gospel, a free gift of salvation, people will say, not that that's a good thing for society, but that that's actually a bad thing. It's it's too easy. It's too convenient. It's letting people off the hook. It's giving people a crutch, an emotional crutch, to get away from the things that they've done and not have to face up to them. Now what do we say as Christians? We say God that the gospel is facing up to our sin. 
it is taking sin seriously because it's facing it before an eternal God a holy God and it's not just an offence against each other it's an offence against him and so grace is a free gift but it is seeing what sin is really like and it's not coming up with an excuse for it or sweeping it under the rug and those who have believed in Jesus um, who is that one who is born of a woman who is righteous and is now their witness in heaven before the Father how how should we live? how should we live? live for Jesus Live for the one who is your witness in heaven. Live for the one who has died for you. Live for him. Live all out in obedience to him. Live all out to make him known. Pray for an undivided heart. We are double-minded, aren't we? One day it's this. Another day it's that. Another day it's Jesus. Another day it's this. Another day it's that. Another moment it's Jesus. You know, we're, we're divided in our hearts. Pray for an undivided heart to live for him between what we hear about him and have received and believed and how we live that the two would join up that's what we pray for each other isn't it Jesus really is the best he's the best news for this world what would it look like for you to be an ambassador for him this week what would it look like for you to live all out flat out for him this week Now, I know summer is usually the time, isn't it, where we take a step back and we sort of take it easy, but let's not switch off spiritually. Because Jesus is the best. And he is the best news for the world. So, just have a think. In how you use what God has given you, in how you plan your time or your family this summer, what will it look like for you to live for Jesus as an ambassador for him? making him known if there's something that you have been battling with in your life sin will you flee from that unrighteousness this week will you live flat out all out in obedience to Jesus yes we fall yes we stumble and we need forgiveness but will you decide to do that will you live for him Will you be intentional in in encouraging your church family? Because (laughs) death must come first. And the people sitting next to you are going to be feeling the jaws of death closing in on them. Will you encourage them? Will you help them to keep trusting Jesus? Will you be a good comforter, not a miserable one? That's what God has put us together for. And we will really mature in our faith, we will really grow in our faith when we live to encourage each other, knowing that our lives are hard and the, the, the things we face are hard and the things going on cause us to suffer and we live in the real world. We live in the world which is all around falling apart. So, will you be intentional about encouraging your church family? How will that look over the summer? When I guess most of us will see less and less of each other, what will that look like? 
and just raise it as a question. How will we encourage one another? If this is true, death must come first. But the other two, we can encourage each other that that will be what results. So I'm just going to give a few moments and I want you to think about those questions. And then we'll pray together. Jesus, you are the best. You are everything. You are everything we need today. Please give us undivided hearts to live all out for you. Please show us again move our hearts, move our emotions to see how wonderful it is that you have faced our greatest enemy. How wonderful it is that we can have comfort from you. That we know that our sins are forgiven. There is no wrath for us to face. That you will raise us to new life with you. We pray that um, that knowing how wonderful that is, that we would respond to you this week. Even in our hearts now, we pray that we'd respond to you about how it is, the things you're challenging us about, how we use our time, our money, our, our homes, our schedules, Lord. We pray that we would live flat out for you, all out for you this summer so that other people would see just what you are like and what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.